This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we're talking biofuels in a two-parter, and if you want to skip the opening monologue and get to the interview, that begins at the four-minute mark. I want to thank you again for checking out the program, and I appreciate all the feedback I've received from family, friends, and colleagues who've helped me craft a podcast that can be accessible to both casual listeners and industry insiders. When developing the concept for this episode, I knew I wanted to do biofuels, and there are several ways I could have gone on this, but I was most interested in learning about cellulosic ethanol. Now, we all know about ethanol because we all drive cars, and you probably know that most of the ethanol in the United States comes from corn, which some people still argue should only be used for food. Ethanol is grain alcohol. It's essentially moonshine. (laughs) I love that show growing up. Heroes who talked like me. Thinking about it now, there was a missed opportunity for the General Lee to run on ethanol from Uncle Jesse's still. You've probably heard of cellulosic ethanol, and that's a different method of making ethanol. However, instead of corn, a grassy feedstock is used. Switchgrass is mentioned a lot in these discussions, but is not the only plant. In fact, the company we're speaking to today is experimenting with several varieties of plants, and they even had a garden out front of their building with all the different species they're working with. Corn ethanol breaks down the sugars in corn to produce the alcohol through the processes of fermentation and distillation, a lot like wild turkey. And cellulosic ethanol, the most acceptable way to create ethanol is to add an extra step by first employing enzymes on an industrial scale to break down the plants into simple sugars that can then be fermented and distilled. The enzyme step is commonly called cellulolysis. I first heard about cellulosic ethanol about 10 years ago when I was making my transition into the energy sector. Cellulosic ethanol was the future, I was told, and would have us growing fields of switchgrass or vast ponds with algae, and corn would be relegated to my morning bowl of frosted flakes. So I was interested to see what was out there 10 years later. I came across our guest today by searching for cellulosic ethanol producers on a public industry database. Turns out there was one in Tennessee that used to be owned by DuPont, but was now run by a company calling itself Genera Energy. They take care of part of the cellulosic process, the feedstock, but they told me to check out another company that was making biofuels, which was also located in the Knoxville area. That would be next week's episode, Proton Power. Before these interviews, I wanted to learn more about this technology, so I consulted the most knowledgeable farmer I know, my uncle, Bobby James, who's retired from farming but still stays close to things from his home in Tinsaw Parish, Louisiana. He was instrumental in my understanding of switchgrass and crops like it. Farming is important to my family. My grandfather, part of the greatest generation, served infantry in World War II, fought on the beaches at D-Day, then came back, bought a little parcel of farmland in the Mississippi River Delta, and raised his family there. He died about a year before I was born, so when I arrived, Ezel James's grandson was named James Ezel Dauenhauer. That's me. So I'm dedicating this show to those brave souls like him who endured 
unimaginable horror, only to come back and create loving, stable lives for their families. As I mentioned, our guest today is Genera Energy, a biomass solutions company based in Venor, Tennessee. That's about 30 miles south of Knoxville. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Oh, Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee. Yep, this company has volunteer roots. Most of its management came from the University of Tennessee. Now, that clip should have been obvious to any Vol fan. It was from a 2007 basketball game in which the late, great Pat Summit took the court to serenade the fans. Certainly one of the greatest basketball coaches ever. Genera Energy's president is also a strong female leader with UT ties, Dr. Kelly Tiller. And because there weren't enough doctors on the senior management team, I spoke with their vice president head of business development, Dr. Sam Jackson. Sam and I sat down one afternoon after one of their board meetings at their offices outside Knoxville. I think we were the last folks out of the office that day, so I really appreciate the time he gave to talk to us. Please enjoy my conversation with Sam Jackson. Sam, I'd just like to open it up very wide. Tell us what you do at Over Genera. So I lead business development for Genera, but Genera as a, as a company really is founded around the principles of using biomass, agricultural biomass, for end products, whether that's alternative fuels, so liquid biofuels, uh, bioproducts, biochemicals, or biopower. Those are typically the four market sectors that we work in. And Genera's focus has always been the supply chain for that agricultural biomass. So everything working from crop selection, planning, landowner recruitment, all the way up through the production and harvesting, storage, logistics, and pre-processing. So everything outside the plant gate of a biofuels facility, a biopower facility, we, we manage. That's what we do. I believe this was a joint venture, between DuPont at the very beginning? Technically not a joint venture, but we supplied DuPont with biomass. DuPont came in as a partner of the Tennessee Biofuels Initiative, which was a state-driven program that involved the University of Tennessee, DuPont, and Genera. And Genera actually spun out of the University of Tennessee as part of that initiative. DuPont's demonstration scale cellulosic biorefinery is located right across the fence from us here. And so as their program developed, we work with them on feedstock supply, along with many other customers as well. But certainly that was kind of a core foundation of, of how we grew and, and got to be where we are today. And I noticed the management team is comprised of a lot of doctors from UT, <laughs> a little bit more than you expect from most. There's Dr. Kelly Tiller, there's Dr. Sam Jackson. So was, yeah, it natural, was it natural tr transition from academia to a, a for-profit company? So that, that's, that's a great question. So Kelly and I are clearly the recovering academics here at the company. Uh, Kelly's our CEO and, and founded the company and I was employee number three. So what made it actually more natural for us to transition is I think we both have entrepreneurial backgrounds um, and have an interest in, in business and really applying some of the things that we have learned and developed in the academic world, uh, applying those in the real business world to make a difference, whether it's in agricultural markets for farmers, more sustainable products for consumers. I would say it was certainly very challenging to make that transition. Academia works very differently than the business world. Not that there's anything wrong with either side, but it's 
it's just a big difference. And so I saw it as a great opportunity to learn something new, uh, to do something I had never done before. I mean, I have been involved in a, a family farm business in the past, but this was a, a very different beast. And so, you know, whether you're looking at scaling up technologies or raising capital investment or developing an EHS program for the company, I mean, I've learned a lot about businesses like this. And, and we work with a great team of people here, to Kelly's credit. Uh, she put together a really strong team. So some of us have more agricultural academic backgrounds. Others have project management experience. We have chemical engineers and things like that on staff. Uh, so that team together is, is a really nice mix and we all kind of complement one another. So it's it's been a lot of fun, been a lot of challenge, but it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun to kind of venture off into the business world. One of the points you seem to infer from your website is that acreage dedicated to biomass could better be utilized other than fertile Iowa soil, which is used for corn. Would I be correct in assuming that, that you can use less arable yeah, land? Yeah, sure. So we typically call it underutilized agricultural land. You know, a lot of people use terms like marginal land and that sort of thing. So we, we look at it in a couple of different ways. We look at it, what's the, the benefit to the farmer? So what can they do to earn the most return from that land to maintain their farm operation and thing like that? We look at what's the most environmentally responsible thing to do with that land. And then kind of the third is how does that that land use or any potential change of that land use impact other things. When corn ethanol started growing, and corn ethanol is not considered cellulosic, so we, we typically don't work in that. But when it was beginning to grow, there was a lot of debate in the media and in, in the public about food versus fuel and what's the right use. Well, you know, with cellulosics um, using biomass, there's still that same concern as do you what are you replacing on that land with your biomass crop, whether it's switchgrass or miscanthus or, or what have you. Typically, what has made biomass production on ag land very attractive, particularly in the southeast, but in other parts of the country, is that we don't have that highly fertile land here. So a farmer growing corn in the southeast is not going to get anywhere the, near the yield of an Iowa or an Illinois or an Indiana corn farmer. I mean, that's the corn belt for a reason. It's very fertile and, and does well with corn. You know, in the southeast, we're, we've got average yields half that and still putting on the same amount of fertilizer, same amount of input. So the economics are very different in our region. That said, our land that we target for our biomass crops is typically what we would consider is an existing pasture land. So cattle are pasturing it now. It's typically not managed very well. Could be hay land or it could be uh, land that has been fallowed or sort of abandoned from productive agriculture because it didn't produce a high enough yield of corn or soybeans. If, if a piece of ground is producing enough corn or soybeans in this region to provide a positive economic return to the farmer, uh, typically biomass crops aren't going to compete head to head with that. It's just a different system. What we like to do is use our crops as another source of income for that farmer. So they further diversify. So maybe they've got corn, maybe they've got beef cattle. Well, even if you have beef cattle, studies time and time again, and the farmers we work with show this as well, that you can better manage existing pasture land and shrink the footprint of your pasture land and use some of that for biomass crops or other uses. So a lot of our farmers have, have really uh, adapted to these energy crops because it's a diverse source of income. You've got another stream over here that's typically pretty consistent because our crops are drought resistant. They do well in a variety of landscapes. And so you have a little bit less risk than you do with annual crops, but you can still maintain all of your other agricultural operations as well. So we like to really kind of view it through a variety of lenses and find out, okay, where do we best fit here? We, you know, we don't want to be disruptive 
if we want to be additive. And in most cases, that, that's the way it plays out. And, that, and that's typically where these projects are most successful because everybody gains. You're not displacing anybody. What I think is interesting to point out is that you wouldn't be replacing Iowa corn. That's exactly with right. Biomass. That would Absolutely. economically not work. That's correct. Right. So it doesn't make sense to even look at that, right? Yeah. Our goals are sustainable products, you know, good for the environment products. But we also want strong farms, whether you're making uh, cellulosic biofuels or biopower or something like that from the bio, it all comes back to the farm that has to produce that biomass. So we want them to be sustainable in the long term. So creating new markets, new opportunities and things like that. You know, that's really what drives us. You offer turnkey support, you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been missing from the supply chain to this point? When you look at any supply chain, and it doesn't matter whether it's biomass or widgets or whatever you want to in the industrial world, in most cases, the technology developer, the person developing the biofuels facility doesn't have a lot of expertise outside of that area. They've had to focus to be very effective and they don't have a lot of expertise. The thing that I would say that we bring to the table is our integrated supply chain. So you can go out there and you can contract with farmer A to grow some biomass and you can contract trucking company C over here to transport it and somebody else to store it and somebody else to pre-process it. But there's a lot of inefficiencies in that. And it's not only from a cost standpoint, but it's a risk thing as well because quality control is really critical here. You know, harvesting your biomass at the right moisture, making sure it stays stored well, covered and dry, those kinds of things. If that system's not integrated, any one of those people could could do things in a way that benefits them, but not other steps in the supply chain. And we've seen time and time again, quality and risk and cost uh, become real issues in those non-integrated systems. So what we focus on is working with the farmer from the time they plant the seed. In many cases, we, we custom harvest material if that's if that's the needed facet but we manage all the trucking we manage the storage we manage the pre-processing so it's all choreographed to make sure everything's done in the the most efficient risk averse way we want to make sure that while switchgrass is only harvested in the field four months out of the year that what we deliver to our customer in January is the same quality as what's delivered in August that's coming out of storage and that takes really focused management so that integrated supply chain I think is our one of our biggest assets. The other piece I would say is that not to to be negative or anything, but oftentimes we've heard technology developers say, you know, if we build it, they'll grow it. It's that sort of concept of it's agriculture, it's really simple. Well, that may be true in some cases, but I would argue that farmers in particular in the agricultural community are some of the most technologically advanced people in business today. They know what they're doing, they look for efficiencies, and they're really good at that. But doing that with individual farmers versus producing 300,000 tons of switchgrass or miscanthus or something else, those are two different levels. Genera really focuses on bringing that industrial mindset to agriculture so that we can make sure that we can aggregate from a thousand farmers if we have to. All of this material, it's all been managed appropriately. It's all the same quality. And there again, you integrate that supply chain. But that industrial approach to ag for these supply chains is one of the other things that's been missing. And you know, industrial oftentimes is taken as a negative word. In this case, we don't see it that way. What we really focus on is that operational efficiency 
working with the farmer to get him the best return and the, the right quality of the product going to the customer, but also safety. This is very close to my heart. My family has a farm in Northeast Louisiana. Have grown corn, soybeans, cotton mm -hmm. over the years mm -hmm. there. Never done anything like a switchgrass before. Sure. So, you know, for a farmer who would be doing something like this for the first time, I think what I'm getting from you is that this is almost, you're basically teaching them how to do a new Absolutely. crop. So, you know, we worked with, with UT's extension. You know, they really helped those farmers. But I can tell you there again, farmers are an innovative bunch. They will study these things. They learn them very, very quickly. In all honesty, our partnerships with the farm, I, I like to call them partnerships because we almost learn as much from them as they do from us. A farmer's not hesitant to say, you know, I see what you're doing here but I think there's a better way to do this. It'd be considered folly to always approach this from what you would consider the top down. Oh, right? absolutely. Yes. I'm the first generation of my family not to farm full time. Farming and agriculture in general, it's about relationships. You know, as we develop new projects, we hire local people. You know, when you're sitting across the table from a, a farm family, they start talking to you about what they're contributing to society in general. I mean, that says a lot. Mm -hmm. They get the whole picture. I find, you know, one of the things I wonder about a lot is the economics of growing crops. And you said over there in the Midwest, you grow a bunch of corn that's never going to mm -hmm. compete with biofuels. But I wonder a lot about some of these places where, and I can think of some, some personal experiences where we've grown a cotton crop and then a hurricane blew through and rained all the cotton off. We sprayed and, you know, there's a lot of overhead involved with that. In any crop, I don't care what it is, whether it's a row crop or a bioenergy crop or anything, you know, there's inherent risk and it's mostly risk from things we can't control, mother nature, <laughs> you know. The other thing is, you know, what does that economic picture look like? The farmers that are in business understand that and they, and they have to fully understand the risk too. A good farmer will take that and they'll put it into their own budget model and they'll come back and tell you where you're wrong or where you're right and what they think. Before we mic'd up, you were saying that you'd been interviewed before. A lot of people come <laughs> here and they want to talk about, what right. about all these subsidies mm -hmm. that biofuels are getting? And I'm just going to start off right here. Sure. Um, and maybe we can just put this to bed right now. This is from the Renewable Fuels Association and they want to set the record straight. So I'm just going to read this right now. It says, there has been no subsidy for corn ethanol since 2011. There is, however, a tax credit for the blenders and there's no ethanol mandate in the renewable portfolio standard. I would assume that's also no biodiesel standard uh, for the diesel side. But there is an RPS that just says renewable fuels. Okay, so you're not saying corn ethanol. You're basically saying there needs to be something yes. renewable there. So, right? so the way the way the renewable fuel standard works is corn ethanol is a distinct and separate fuel from cellulosic ethanol and other advanced biofuels. And so that can be advanced green diesel, advanced green gasoline, so hydrocarbon replacements, things like that. And biodiesel is viewed separately as well. So within the renewable fuel standard, there are different categories and different volume mandates and things like that. So corn ethanol is, is somewhat fairly capped in the renewable fuel standard as to, to kind of where it's at today. And I think we're somewhere close to 15 billion gallons of capacity in the country. So we could argue all day long whether the government should be incentivizing or subsidizing new technologies into existing marketplaces. Kind of like the joke your mother always told you not to talk about politics and mixed <laughs> company. Everybody has their opinion and, and sure. it is what it is. You know, one of the things 
things that, that Genera has always focused on. We don't believe in modeling with federal or state mandates or incentives or anything like that. We feel that our biomass production systems should stand on their own. There are benefits down the road to some incentive program and the farmers can take advantage of that and produce a lower cost crop. That's great. I think we all realize that political winds kind of change from day to day or year to year. And so there's a lot of uncertainty even with the renewable fuel standard. Even though it's been in place since 2008, there's never been really any consistency or focused push on that from a political standpoint. There's always been a lot of debate. Right or wrong, I'm not arguing with any of that. All I'm stating is that uh, when we look at things, we try to look at them in absence of all of that. And we can argue that the oil industry's had subsidies for years and all of that. And, and you know, that's that's a true statement. That's and what they also point out. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But we, we, we kind of have our blinders on and we're focused on doing the right thing for, for what sectors we're in and the customers we work with. And so while those are, are beneficial things in some ways to us and harmful things in other ways, we try to kind of model our business approach outside of that. I think we all realize that the political environment that we're in today, I think a lot of those subsidies will probably go away over time. I do I do believe that, that some incentives have helped develop some of these technologies and industries, but there there does come a point where you have to stand on your own two feet. Okay. Well, let's leave all that alone. Let's <laughs> put a fork in it. Let's talk about the research you guys are doing here. Sure. When I came up here, I was expecting more kind of like a corporate office, I guess, <laughs> uh, not uh, a facility with 80-foot grain stacks out back. They're uh, actually 100 feet, by the way. So. I was, actually, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to reset that question. What are you working on there right now? So, so that's a that's a great question. So, Genera's facility here is a is a commercial scale pre-processing facility, but it was built and designed with a lot of bells and whistles for R&D and that sort of thing. When we built those bins, they had never been constructed to store biomass like that in the past. On the R&D side, though, we are involved in um, and have been in the past involved in several different competitive research grants. We've probably piloted somewhere around ten or twelve different proprietary machines before they were ever introduced to the commercial marketplace. But what that does for us as a company is it helps us stay on the leading edge of technology. That's kind of where I get to go play in my old academic background on some of these R&D things. And that's been really beneficial. But at the same time, we still run commercially. It looks to me like you're using a lot of, and I saw some of the pictures out front where you had the, the pellets. Mm -hmm. Looks very similar to a uh, grain feed mill. It is somewhat similar, absolutely. So when you've got multiple biorefineries up and running, multiple byproducts, so biomass is going a lot of different directions, I think it could absolutely be like a grain feed mill. Not quite there today, but the concept is valid. We can do a lot of things with blending in our feedstocks to address ash issues or other things that may be a problem with a single feedstock. We can blend it and address that for a customer. It says you're on your website, you're trying to get feedstock prices down to $80 a dry ton. Mm -hmm. What's special about that number? Nothing's really special about that number other than it's realistic. That allows the farmer to earn a decent return. That allows the supply chain to earn a return and still provide the customer with a great feedstock. And I guess the reason why I'm going down this line of questioning is it just seems like you're trying to get a price per ton so it would be on parity with other feedstocks. For instance, like a ton of coal. Yeah, it, it, but it depends on the market you're going into as well, right? So if we're going into biopower, clearly it's competing against coal and natural gas and those kind of things. You know, on cellulosic biofuels, it's not so much that you're competing against a different feedstock, it's that you're competing to make the end fuel cost effective for the consumer. Sustainability and environmental uh, benefits of that fuel will sell a certain amount of it. But at the end of the day, when the consumer pulls up to the gas pump, but if I'm standing there and that E85 is 30 cents more per gallon, the consumer is going to make some choices there and prices at the top of their list. Typically with cellulosic ethanol, you're looking at about anywhere from 30 to 
50% of the cost of that gallon is in the feedstock. So we can make a big dent. I think what I'm ultimately trying to get at is if I'm growing switchgrass, mm -hmm. what economic factors need to happen for me to get a better price for switchgrass? So, so the challenge, the fundamental difference that you have is switchgrass, miscanthus, whatever feedstock you're growing from an energy crop standpoint, they're not commodity crops. On the dedicated energy crop side, typically I'm not going to grow it unless I have an offtake contract. So that's where we try to work with the farmer a little bit more on the contracting terms. Perhaps they get a five-year or even a 10-year production contract. Yeah, we'll buy everything you can produce for 10 years. The point is the farmer can understand that while this is a new crop and it's not a commodity, if I have an offtake contract that somebody signs for me, that's a much more consistent return over a 10-year period than me going out here trying to wrestle with beans on that same piece of ground. Farmers weigh the risk of these contracts versus the risk of other things that they could be doing on that farm. And they look at that opportunity cost very, very closely, and they'll tell you whether or not your system works really quickly. Where do you think cellulosic ethanol production is today commercially? Cellulosic ethanol today commercially, there are, yeah, I guess there are two real true commercial scale cellulosic ethanol biorefineries in the U.S., Poet and DuPont. So we're roughly, based on those two, two capacities, you're somewhere in the 60 million gallon a year range. Pretty insignificant in the overall scheme of things. But those two facilities represent pretty big leaps in technology. I mean, so they're uh, basically using uh, enzymes to break down the biomass. So the difficulty between cellulosic ethanol and corn ethanol is it's much easier to get the sugar basically out of the corn than it is out of plant material. So it's more complex. There are others in the world. Beta Renewables has a plant uh, up in Europe and some in Brazil. There are other technologies out there too that are coming along but they're new technologies they're not flawless and we should never think they're going to be flawless so it takes time i think the biggest disservice that that was done to the industry early on was a lot of over promising of we can produce a billion gallons in five years we can produce 10 billion gallons in 20 years compared to conventional ethanol production is cellulosic ethanol cost competitive uh it's it's getting to be keep in mind i'm on the supply side so i'm not in the trenches of the economics but i think they've made a lot of headway in that area and made a lot of ground up you know corn ethanol has been around a lot longer and they've made a lot of advances that have made their product very sustainable and very cost effective but i, I think cellulosic ethanol will will reach some cost parity there uh, i'm gonna ask some non-industry <laughs> question for you right now okay. uh, your ceo is kelly tiller and i don't want to sound like a misogynist here but there's a real shortage of female CEOs in the energy sector. Uh, exceptions include Lynn Good at Duke, Deborah Reed at Sempra mm -hmm. over there in San Diego. What does that mean for your company? I, I typically look at it in, in the value for our company as opposed to the industry in whole, but I think I could probably put it best in saying that I would follow Kelly into battle just about anywhere. Female or male leadership, her leadership style is very effective at, at piecing together the different skill sets that the different members of our team have and putting those to the best use. Kelly is just extremely adept at reading uh, customer concerns and reading market trends and industry trends and positioning our company from a long-term perspective of where we need to be five years from now, much less tomorrow. She's very um, effective at uh, dealing with problems and issues that come up and, and making sure that we stay focused. I mean, 
I, I, in all honesty, I couldn't say enough about Kelly. I mean, our company is literally what it is because of Kelly Tiller. The industry in general, I think, you know, I would certainly put Kelly up against any other CEO out there uh, for her leadership style, her leadership qualities and that kind of thing. And certainly having a female leader uh, does set us apart in the industry and make us unique. But I think it only beca- it's only because it makes us stronger. And finally, I'm going to do, do this for all the different people who represent <laughs> all the different industries. So you're biofuels, right? So I'm going to go ahead and do what I call my my lightning round. What comes to mind when you first hear these things? Okay, uh, natural gas. Low cost at this point and a very competitive source for power. Coal. Coal has been a long-standing industry that has employed a lot of people, but has experienced a very significant downturn here in recent years. There's a lot of skilled workers that could come out of that industry into others. Uh, and I think only time will tell kind of what the future for coal holds. Crude oil. Crude oil is never going to go away. I mean, I think anybody that says that biofuels are are going to replace oil is is naive oil is our main energy source because it's been cheap and easy for a long period of time but that said i think there's plenty of room for other products out there in the marketplace and i think the biofuel producers need to work with the industry oil industry oil industry distributes fuels biofuels are fuels it only makes sense that they have that as a product in their portfolio nuclear i'm not knowledgeable enough about nuclear to really even uh, uh broach that subject to be quite honest <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Hydroelectric. You know, certainly living here in the Tennessee Valley Authority region, hydro has provided a tremendous amount of energy and economic development to the region and I think is a great asset. I know it's kind of a lightning round with a lot of different energy sources, but uh, I'm a big believer in a portfolio approach. One single thing is not the answer. It's going to take a combination of things to not only provide uh, power and, and energy and fuels at economically beneficial prices, but also from an environmental standpoint and an economic development development standpoint for jobs and that sort of thing. I mean, we're naive to think that one single source is going to serve all those needs. It's going I to think what I like to call it is everything everywhere all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to have options. Mm-hmm. Uh, wind? Uh, wind is, is, a, is a good resource for the right parts of the country. Here in the southeast in particular, we're not very good at wind power just because we don't have the sustained winds or the topography to support it. Solar? I think solar is an excellent development. Um, a lot of the farms that we work with actually have solar grid installations on the farm. That is one federal incentive program that I would probably fight for pretty hard is I've, I've known a lot of farmers that have received some incentive tax incentives and things like that to install small scale solar on their farms where they power their entire farm with a solar panel and sell back to the grid. I think that's a no brainer. Uh, but there again, solar is not 100% of the time the answer. And I think it, it just adds to the overall uh, energy portfolio of the country and provides us some significant economic and environmental benefits. You guys, biofuels. I think I think biofuels are a great fit. Um, am I going to sit here today and say 10 years from now or 20 years from now, are we all going to be running on cellulosic ethanol? I'm not sure I'm willing to say that. I think it's a great fuel, but it's a start. There are other things that we can do uh, from a biofuel standpoint. There are a number of technologies out there looking at direct hydrocarbon replacement green fuels. So taking biomass and converting it into a fuel that is chemically similar to petroleum-based gasoline. So there's no blending issues. There's no distribution issues. You know, there are a lot of things like that that we have to to deal with in the biofuels industry. Just because cellulosic ethanol is not perfect doesn't mean that's not where we can start and just build a sustainable industry from. You know, the oil industry today is not what it was in 1920. They've made a lot of advancements, just like any other thing. You know, had we stopped with the Commodore 64 because it wasn't a perfect computer, you know, we wouldn't have cell phones today kind of thing. So that's kind of how I view it is that I think biofuels have a great role to play, but I think we have a lot of development to do in technology and it's kind of actually exciting to see where we 
might wind up in a few years. I can't believe you knocked the Commodore 64. I had a Commodore 64. Um, <laughs> that's what I learned on. It was the greatest thing of its time, but <laughs> you always innovate. You always take that as your stepping stone to the next step and you step up from there and you keep going just like in any other industry. And I think the biofuel side is the same way. Electric vehicles. So I listened to an interesting podcast the other day on electric vehicles and, and kind of the the lack of development there. It was kind of interesting to, to understand some electric vehicles back in the early part of the 1900s, you know. There again, I think they have a place, but where are you going to get your electricity for that electric vehicle? It's great to say you've got a zero emission vehicle, but if you're burning coal to put the electricity into that vehicle, you're kind of negating the whole thing. So I think that electric driven vehicles and technologies like that are great, but we have to make sure we can feed them sustainably as well, just like anything else. Nuclear fusion. Not knowledgeable enough to even talk about. There you go. <laughs> Sam Jackson, thank Pretty you much. so much. You're Appreciate welcome. It. No problem, man. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Yeah. There you have it, my interview with Dr. Sam Jackson, VP of Business Development for Genera Energy, a biomass solutions company in Tennessee. And just in case you're wondering if I have a sense of humor, yes, I did try to make a Pulp Fiction Samuel L. Jackson joke, but it bombed so badly, I wrote Sam a handwritten letter of apology two weeks ago. I hope he forgives me. Some things just sound better in your head. Thank you to my cousin, Beth Ann James, for clarifying some family history in my opening monologue, you're the best. Music for this podcast was produced by Sean Stroop. You can find him at Stroop, that's S-T-R-O-O-P-E, Loops. We are now on Instagram where I've posted some pictures. That's at Host Energy. The home base is energy-cast.com and my email is host at energy-cast.com. As promised, please join us next week when we continue our visit in Tennessee to discuss a fascinating new gasification energy technology that is an alternative to conventional biofuel production. That wraps up things for this week. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.